Hello and welcome to a special discussion on the race for Manhattan District Attorney. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm joined for this special discussion by three expert guests. They are Rebecca Royfe, who is a professor at New York Law School and a former Manhattan prosecutor. Thanks for being here, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Daniel Alonzo is a litigation partner at Buckley LLP, a former federal prosecutor, and served as the chief assistant district attorney in Manhattan during Cy Vance's first term. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. And Kelly Young is a black Christian lawyer, community organizer, and Brooklyn native working towards black liberation. And she's the civil rights campaign coordinator at Voices of Community Activists and Leaders, known as Vocal New York. And Vocal New York is part of the People's Coalition for Manhattan DA Accountability. So thank you all for being here, Kelly, thank you. Thank you for having me. So this race for Manhattan District Attorney, the Democratic primary is open to Democratic voters in Manhattan. It's also known as New York County. If you see that on your ballot, it's technically a state office. It's not part of the city government elections that are happening, although it's happening at the same time. So it has a little bit of a different voting system, as many should know. Ranked choice voting is at play in the primaries that relate to city government positions, but there's no ranked choice voting in the Manhattan District Attorney election. You pick your top choice, you get one vote when you go, and whoever gets the most votes wins, even in this crowded race of eight candidates. And those eight candidates are Dan Court, Eliza Orleans, Liz Crotty, Diana Florence, Tali Farhadian Weinstein, Alvin Bragg, Lucy Lang, and Tahani Abushi. Now, there is a discussion of the candidates and their stances that I hosted with uh, Jonah Bromwich, a reporter for the New York Times, and Deanna Paul, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, that is also part of this special episode on the Manhattan District Attorney race. So with this ex expert panel, we're not gonna really dig in so much on the candidates and their platforms and what they're running on and who they are, as we are about broader issues of how the Manhattan District Attorney Office works, why it's important, uh, some of the calls for reform, uh, some of the ways that the office deals with crime and many other issues. All right, so let's get into our discussion here. Uh, Rebecca, let's start with you. What's, how do you see the role of a Manhattan District Attorney? What is the job and what do you make of sort of some of the calls around uh, changes to the office, how it should function, what it should look like? So, you know, I think the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is an incredibly important office. It, um, whoever inherits this role is going to affect the future of the city. And because the city is the center of so much in the country, um, it also has significance in that regard, too. Um, I, I also think it's really important to think about the history of the office. And this is an office that has had the history of um, professionalism and I think excellence, to sort of put it um, briefly. and. We are in the midst of an ongoing conversation about what those two things mean in the context of prosecution. And I think that's a really important conversation to be had. What I think though, is that to dismiss the entire office and the central mission of the office as a um, part of you know, the um, state violence or a perpetuation of Jim Crow is mistaken and misguided. So there is a way to think about this in an ongoing conversation about what this office, how this office ought to improve on its mission and goals without throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Dan, why don't you continue on that? And, and then we'll come to Kelly for, for thoughts on some of that uh, more serious uh, reform. But uh, Dan, what else would you say about what the office is and what it does? Well, first of all, I couldn't have said it better myself. <clears throat> I mean, that was uh, that, that's that's exactly right in my view. And uh, and obviously the, the history of professionalism is very, very important. I mean, to give a little bit of historical perspective, this office was very politicized for the first, you know, 150 years of, of, of this republic or uh, maybe a little less. And, you know, it would be that you know, politics was the only thing that mattered. You know, what ward boss was supporting the DA, what uh, what district leader, et cetera. 
And so the office was very politicized uh, into the 1930s, such that it really didn't even go after the problems of the day, which were essentially racketeers who were extorting legitimate businesses. And that all changed in 1937 with the election of Thomas E. Dewey. And since then, we've had a, a you know, a largely apolitical, notwithstanding that the DA needs to be elected, a largely apolitical uh, outlook on the role of the office and the other DAs have come along. So, you know, no longer are assistant DAs hired from, you know, the, the local political clubhouse, which is what it was, you know, from the 1930s and before. That's very important in this race, by the way, because there's a different kind of politics that's kind of permeating here, uh, which is not so much the politics of the clubhouse, although obviously the political clubs have, have made endorsements, but it's more this kind of progressive versus more traditional, right? We're not talking conservative. We're talking about, you know, traditional liberal versus far left progressive is what we have here. And, uh, and you know, there's a danger, I think, that the office will get politicized again. I mean, some of the candidates, particularly the ones who are the most progressive by their own indication and, and by Kelly's organization, the least harmful, you know, the ones that would do the least harm to uh, uh, to people, uh, they are they have said outright that they're going to fire large numbers of assistant DAs. And that, to me, uh, carries with it an enormous risk of losing the professionalism of the office, the quality of the lawyers, uh, and it carries an enormous risk of politicization. Uh, right. One candidate, just you, you asked for examples, Dan Court uh, has actually said, you know, we should no longer be looking for the best and brightest like Cy Vance does all around the country because we have perfectly good lawyers here. Now, I don't disagree with the fact that we have perfectly good lawyers in New York, but why on earth wouldn't we look for people, uh, you know, who are the best and brightest around the country? So I'm very concerned about the politicization. You're getting at a little bit of the, the job of sort of running a big office. We'll come back to that in a second. Kelly, your view, uh, your organization's view, your coalition's view, um, what is the role and where should it be heading? So the, <clears throat> excuse me, the district attorney is the top law enforcement official. That is the role and it is an important role because of the enormous unchecked power that they have. And, you know, both of my panelists mentioned, my co-panelists mentioned the history of the office and rooted in professionalism, I think was missing from that conversation is that for the entire history of that office has been run by white men. And the perpetuation of Jim Crow is absolutely involved in the office because the crimes that are, or the, the, the behaviors that are being criminalized are rooted in racialized laws designed to control and harm black and brown people. I mean, I think that that, that is something that can't be ignored and to the extent that it is you know, swept aside is, is dismissive of the lived realities of people in Manhattan and in New York City. Um, and as the top law enforcement official, DAs can't respond to harm in a manner that is rooted in values of fairness, equity, and restoration. And they can't be directly accountable to community members themselves. And we've seen this. And so it is, you know, the position of Vocal and the coalition that we are a part of that the DA needs to take steps to reduce its presence um, and ultimately withdraw its presence from community programming. Um, and we, we're gonna talk about reform and, and this emergence of progressive prosecutors, but at the end of the day, there's no progressive way to cage people. And that needs to be you know, front and center when we talk about the power that the district attorney has and the tools that they have, which are incredibly limited. So uh, Rebecca, in terms of the job, is it, is it more in your mind than prosecuting prosecuting crimes? I mean, what you know should should the district attorney's office be um, running community programs? Should the district attorney's office be involved in all sorts of alternatives to incarceration? What what you know what does that picture look like? And and what's your view on what the proper sort of um, imprint of the office is? Right. I mean, as I said, you know, this is a, a an office that has always been focused on excellence. That doesn't mean it's always done the right things. The state of our um, understanding of what it means to be a prosecutor and how to be an effective prosecutor has changed over time. I think Cy Vance's office has made a lot of progress, as did Morgenthau's in, um, you know, looking at alternative um, mechanisms other than, you know, simply putting people in jail. And, I, and the state of empirical evidence is certainly that these long sentences are not effective. What is effective, though, is not just community programs. It's community programs coupled with sure, swift, 
prosecution. And so I think we can do these things together. We can reduce incarceration by reducing the length of sentences without eliminating the role of prosecution, which is so critical in keeping these communities safe, which is also part and parcel of the office's function. So the short answer, absolutely. Um, they should do what they have been doing and do more of it and do it in a smarter way. But I don't think giving up the tool of prosecution is right or, empiric or empirically based. That's not the way we, we, we make our city safer. And it's not the way that we protect communities, all communities, and particularly communities of color. Dan, one of the biggest discussions in this in this race is about do not prosecute lists. Uh, different candidates have different lists of the of the offenses they don't want to prosecute or that they would look to do uh, alternatives. Um, what do you make of that discussion? Uh, there's long, some have longer lists than others. Some want to take a lot of things case by case. Um, where does that discussion stand in your mind? Well, first of all, I should say that I, I agree that it's within the authority of the DA to decide not to prosecute large categories of crimes. I think the only the only remedy for that is political, right? Vote the person out. If you don't like the crimes, she's not prosecuting. Uh, that said, well, wait, I, don't wait, think I actually wanted to ask you about that after your answer to my, my first question. But while you're there, isn't isn't the district attorney supposed to sort of follow the laws that are decided by the by the lawmakers, you know, by the, the laws that are on the books? Or how, how does that discretion um, how does that discretion play out? Isn't doesn't if that discretion is being exercised to a really significant extent, doesn't that really make it a very political office? Uh, well, in, in, in one sense, it does. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't want individual cases to be ever be decided by political considerations, but the people can, for example, elect a, a DA who wants to focus more on one kind of crime versus another. It's a political question. Uh, and, and New York law is very clear that the that the discretion of the DA is, you know, rep practically absolute. There is a different political remedy other than voting them out, by the way. The governor can supersede the district attorney on particular cases or in general, if that's what he wants to do. So it, there are political remedies to if people don't like that. I was about to say, though, I think it's incredibly unwise to have these blanket categories. Uh, you know, certainly the candidates who have the largest blanket categories are Eliza Orleans, Dan Court, and Tahani Ibushi, to a lesser extent, Alvin Bragg. Uh, but the the uh, the categories are, some of them are very, very important. I mean, let me give you a couple of examples. So um, we have Eliza Orleans, for example. She has six misdemeanors that she's going to prosecute, right? They involve, I don't have the whole list, but it's something like sex abuse and domestic violence and things that are important, obviously. But, the, but everything else, unless there's some extraordinary circumstance, she won't prosecute. So in another part of her platform, she wants to hold police accountable, right? That's a big buzzword, hold police accountable. By the way, I was a prosecutor of police officers. I obtained convictions against multiple police officers in my career. It's not hard. It's not easy to do, but it's an important thing to do. You need all the tools in your toolbox, including the misdemeanors, to hold police accountable. So, for example, uh, we prosecute police for official misconduct. That's a misdemeanor. Making a punishable false written statement. That's a misdemeanor. Tampering with witnesses in certain levels is a misdemeanor. Right. If you're going to do away with misdemeanors, you're going to you're going to handcuff yourself. But probably even more importantly, on a, on a more broad point, it's it is the way that the community, you know, through the state legislature speaks and says, look, these are things that we uh, we believe are wrong. And so so having a blanket policy, I think, is a terrible idea. Having a having a policy that gives you incredible discretion or that will do diversion in large categories of cases. So, for example, when the when the, the current DA will, is currently diverting every shoplifting case, right? If there's a problem, it comes into the system. But otherwise, they're offering diversion before the person even comes to court for shoplifting. Um, you can argue with whether that's wise or not, but it's one way to, to meet this criticism that, that the system is over-criminalizing. Uh, the last thing I want to say is that we, you should know that we, we've always had some categories. Everyone's always had some lists. So when I was a young ADA, and I don't know if Becky remembers this as well, but I was told we don't prosecute fortune telling, we don't prosecute adult obscenity, and we don't prosecute adultery. You know, those were crimes that were on the books back then. Some of them still are. Um, so it's not like there, there's never been such a list. It's just doing it in a blanket way really does what you said, usurp the will of the legislature, even though the DA has the technical authority to do it. All right, Kelly, what, um, what, what about do not prosecute lists? What about 
what should be prosecuted in your mind, if anything, you know, that, um, you know, one of the things obviously that draws a line in the discussions in this race and a lot of the broader discussion right now in, in New York uh, politics and government and society is about violent crime, gun violence. Um, what, what's your stance on what should and shouldn't be prosecuted and how different crimes fall on that uh, spectrum? Thank you. So I, I guess I first want to respond uh, to what Rebecca said about needing prosecutors for the public safety of communities, specifically communities of color. And, I, and that greatly ignores the trauma, abuse, and torture that these communities have felt at the hands of district attorneys. And, and we can't we can't separate that out. And another thing I want to you know, encourage us to acknowledge is the difference between crime and harm. You know, because we know that there are a lot of things that are criminalized that aren't harmful. And there are a lot of things that are harmful that are not criminalized. And a lot of that has to do with what we look like, how much money we have, what communities we're a part of. Um, and so when we just say, oh, this thing is a crime and that's the will of the legislature, you know, we know that, um, you know, it is, it, is, it is the law that slavery is abolished except as punishment for a crime. And then after that, several crimes were created in order to criminalize free black people like that that is the history of of our criminal legal system in this country and it cannot be ignored and so we're not saying that there is no harm we absolutely know that what we are calling for is for governments and 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 legal professionals to change the way we respond to the harm and look at root causes and that is something that district attorneys cannot do. Um, and it's something that they shouldn't do. There's no reason why district attorneys should be gatekeepers for resources that community needs. We shouldn't have to go through district attorneys to get access to treatment, to get access to, to, to job services, to get access to all of these things that should already be in communities. Um, and so, yes, do not prosecute lists are, are important because it is a corrective tool. At this point, all the only thing that district attorneys can do for communities is reduce harm. And having these lists reduces the harms that community members are facing. And again, I feel like the question is going to say, but what about victims? And again, that even the dichotomy between victim and perpetrator ignores the fact that on any given day, those are the same people. You know, I wasn't going to say that. Could I, could I jump in, Ben? Sorry. I wasn't going to say about victims. I was going to say communities of color, in my experience, are not a monolith. I mean, there are many, many, many people in low-income communities and communities of color who come to the DA's office, come to the police and ask for lots of help. So this mm -hmm. is not, I don't think this is a uniform position. And I'll also say that a lot of the crimes on the do not prosecute list had nothing to do with, you know, post Jim Crow, you know, trying to enslave people, you know, commercial burglary, which Tahani Abushi and Dan Court won't prosecute. They just won't prosecute it. I'm not sure why, but, you know, if people are, are burglarizing stores in Midtown without physical injury and without burglar's tools, they just won't prosecute that. And it makes no sense to me. And it doesn't particularly uh, have much to do, in my view, with what Kelly's saying. Why would we not hold people accountable in the words of this race for burglarizing stores? Go, go ahead. Can, you, I can, can I respond to that? Please? Yeah, absolutely. Let me just add in what I wanted to ask you, which I think you can, which I think you can merge, which is why I'm, why I'm adding it in. But um, you know, one of the things that I think you're getting at that sometimes gets missing is people talk about, um, do, you know, these do not prosecute lists. And what you're trying to put on the table is, is the alternatives in terms of harm reduction and uh, restorative justice and things like that. So I was going to ask you to sort of mention the viewpoint on that as part of that. And perhaps you can, you can merge those. Yeah. Um, I'll try. Uh, to Daniel's point, though, I absolutely understand that people of color are not a monolith. That's a person of color myself. What I'm saying is, though, I'm encouraging you all to think about the reasons why people of color are going to prosecutors and police officers for help. And that is because they have been deprived of resources in their communities to address the harms that are being caused. And so there's this call for reducing the footprint of prosecutors and reducing the footprint of police also is on the flip side, a call to invest in these communities so that we do not have to go outside of our communities for help. You know, the, the, the laws as they've been created and, and then I think your failure to see the, the ties between, you know, Jim Crow laws and how laws are being enforced today is, 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 is incredibly telling because at every stage of the criminal legal process, communities of color 
are disproportionately represented. And that is a direct legacy of Jim Crow laws. Um, to your point, Ben, with you know, the calls for restorative justice and transformative justice, it's really a reorientation in how we target root causes and how we empower communities to, you know, think of different ways to address harm. It's because we're again, we're not saying that these harms are not going to exist, but we can't persist. We can't survive with this, you know, knee-jerk reaction to throw people away only to have them come back into the community, having been, you know, re-traumatized and brutalized by the system. Um, and so it is, it is a call, one, for resources in communities and for programs in communities that make it so that people who do commit harm we are we are positioned to address those root causes and we are positioned to you know have interventions that make it so that that person can be brought back in the community without being isolated without being brutalized without having the stigma of having even touched the criminal legal system Rebecca, go ahead and jump in here if you want to. Okay. I mean, look, I I I think that you know, in some ways, at least, um, you know, in terms of um, our positions, that you know, that this is being this is more stark than it needs to be. I mean, I agree with a huge amount of what Kelly is saying. Um, I just think we have to do this in a way that is. Um, uh, thoughtful and based in empirical evidence. And so, you know, the empirical evidence, she's absolutely right that there are some kinds of solutions that involve local communities and services that have proven to be extremely effective and we should use those. Um, but I think it is not based in empirical evidence to say that you will be able to remove harm entirely from communities simply by using those. Um, so I think that um, partnering with the DA's office and moving resources within the DA's office so as to correct some of the historical problems and some of the ongoing problems that Kelly so articulately and um, passionately describes is a far better approach and a approach that's based in empirical evidence. And if we don't do that, we threaten a huge backlash because if crime spikes um, as a result of dismantling the DA's office and its role in crime control, then we are not going to elect in the next election, we're not gonna be talking about these eight progressive prosecutors. We're gonna be talking about people who will do far worse. And that backlash is something we need to think about in order to make this state and these reforms stick. We need to be rooted. We need to root our, um, our, our reactions and our policy in empirical evidence. And I think much of what she said is rooted in empirical evidence, but the idea that there is not a critical role for prosecution is just not that, that just, I mean, as far as anything I have ever read, is there, does it distribute office? Is it distribution disabled? So I mean, I think crime control involved all of this. You know, the terms of the key, the key institutions in this country. I mean, it is obviously not for private crime even. There does not, however, swift, sure, prosecution is. So the fact we can get gun off streets, we can make neighborhoods safer. We need doesn't mean it's the only thing, and it doesn't mean it should be used as it has been used in the past. I think that would be a huge error that Kelly described. However, doing away with or even cutting back on the capacity to do this is also a huge. Look at the candidate. I personally, some candidates were sensitive to both of these Kelly described, but not willing to report or adjusting, throwing away some of the critical tools we have in our toolbox that proved to work. I want to try to get to several other subtopics as the this race, but it looked like if you wanted to say one more thing on this. And, and the reason the got into business of trying to divert things and get certain knowledge is because it was sort of a way to wait for the government to get where Kel might be. I, we agree on a lot of those goals. Great. But I think the DA used, you know, some of its some of the leverage that it has over various actors, including this, but including uh, communities to try to get, uh, you know, try to prevent. Um, and, and, and also, it's an easy to uh, said, you know, it can't be that it's not the time that uh, science and the DA has seen great changes in the way there were 100 the year that he became DA. And there were something like, you know, 40,000 last year. Uh, and in 2019. And so, and that was not a coincidence. That was through concerted effort by him at great criticism, by the way, by some editorial, by the police. And he really did that by force of will. He always wanted to do that. He understands exactly what folks like Kelly are advocating, that there are huge categories of people that even a day missing work for court or, or being in, held in, in a lockup overnight, it can have really 
consequential effects on their their and their families' lives. So so we should acknowledge that a lot of good work has already been done. Yeah, and I want to Can come I back. just say that hey. yeah, ahead, the, the numbers of cases have dropped significantly, but what has not changed is the racial disparities in those cases. And to call it a problem is to miss the point that the entire system is inherently racist and perpetuates white supremacy. And that's what we're talking about. And it's, it's not a problem. It is the system. Um, and to expect that system to, you know, do good. I mean, sure, like sometimes it can, but it, it is always going to be perpetuating those injustices. It's always going to be prosecuting more Black people, like, um, sorry, like disproportionately more Black people and people of color than not. It is always going to be doing more harm to those communities than not. Um, and, and I think that that, and we don't have time to say, you know, well, you know, let's let's not throw this out. I think let's let's do throw it out and create something better because, you know, while we wait, my communities are being ravaged. And I think it is easy for folks to say, you know, it is too drastic to do this. And on the other side, it's like we're, we're dying while, while we wait to figure things out. Dan, I want to come back to you in a, in a second um, about the relationship between the district attorney's office and the police department uh, and what that looks like in terms of both uh, collaboration and holding police accountable. You mentioned this uh, earlier, but Kelly, I, just, I wanted to follow up with you about this idea that let's say, um, and, and hearing many points of nuance from, from all of you, um, but what is your view in terms of the question around, do some people need to be removed from society for some period of time because at, at least at the most extreme of violence, of extreme violence, of using a gun to shoot or kill somebody? What is the, what is the remedy from your perspective um, for that? So I think one of the first things I wanna talk about, and, and I think you pointed this in an earlier question, dichotomy we're making between violent and nonviolent crimes. Um, I think that ignores the fact that we're usually talking about the same people with the same unmet needs, and this distinction is false, it is racist, and it is literally stopping us from ending mass incarceration. And, you know, we're talking, you saying, like, remove people and put them where? Because put them in the prisons? No. Like, no one, no one should go into this prison system. As Daniel already mentioned, like, touching it for a day is destabilizing, not for that individual, but for their families and for their communities. And I think, you know, a better, a better response is to figure out, have, have community resources um, and programs in place to figure out the root causes for these violent acts, subjecting people who commit violence to more violence. I don't, I don't see how that's ever going to work. Dan, there's, discussion in this race about the relationship between the district attorney's office and the uh, police department. As I mentioned, uh, I've heard some candidates talk about there should be a, sort of a walled off special unit in the Manhattan district attorney's office just for police accountability cases. So those uh, prosecutors and, and those in that unit uh, who are not prosecutors, you know, are not also working with police on other cases. Um, what's, your, what's your sort of experience in this and what's your viewpoint on that relationship? Well, one frustration I and many of my former colleagues have had in this race is the number of you know brilliant ideas that the candidates toss out that have been done forever. I mean, the the uh, there has been a separate police accountability unit since the early '90s that was separate. It's been in, gone through different guises. There is one now. It's separate completely from uh, from the rest of the office. It doesn't even report to the divisions, and they just do uh, police matters. So you know it, that, that's a good idea for the reasons you said, uh, but it's being done and it's been done for a long time. There may be better ways to do it, of course. Uh, and like I said, you know. I, I investigated police for a long time. So, uh, you know, I'm sure I could tweak it as well if I if I went in there. But to say that the office is not doing anything, is just nonsense. Um, but uh, to your broader question about the relationship. So, listen, on the one hand, uh, the the office needs the police and even the progressive candidates who have a small category of things they want to prosecute, like hate crimes and wage theft and you know sex crimes, they they're gonna they need the police, right? But uh, but more broadly, we need the police for the crime prevention function that Rebecca was talking about. The DA's DA Vance talked from day one about uh, a crime prevented is better than a crime prosecuted. So we need to use every tool in the toolbox. And DAs at the end of the day, folks, are just lawyers, right? We're lawyers. We stand up in court. 
right? So yes, we can direct investigations. Yes, we can craft all sorts of solutions, but you can't do that without law enforcement officers. You have to do that judiciously, uh, but of course you have to have a professional working relationship with them. And by the way, people may not know, it's kind of inside baseball. It's not as cozy a relationship as a lot of the candidates make it out to be. There was a lot of friction, certainly during Vance's first term uh, with the police department uh, under uh, under Ray Kelly, who was who was in some ways, you know, a very effective commissioner. But uh, obviously he was criticized by the left. But also it was it was not the easiest relationship, actually, I have to say. Um, and and so it's not always as cozy as people as people think. ADAs are trained to be skeptical of what witnesses say. ADAs are frustrated when police don't you know, tell the whole truth. Um, and ADAs are supposed to and do regularly, as the statistics show, um, throw cases out when they don't believe the police officers. So, you know, these are things that, that no one mentions, but they are, in fact, uh, true. Vigilance, great, of course. Prosecuting police officers when they commit crimes, of course. But this this blanket, you know, police are running roughshod over over the world and, and you know, DAs are their willing consigliaries is just wrong. Rebecca. Yeah, I'd, jump I'd, in on that, but then also I wanted to get you to start a, a little discussion on sort of the um, the role of the office and looking at what is often referred to as white collar crime, uh, other things related to uh, wage theft, which was mentioned, but also things like uh, you know related to practices on Wall Street and in, in corporations and other things. But go ahead. Yeah, so I, I mean, I just wanted to add that I think we're in a moment, and and it, it's a mistake not to take this moment and and make lasting change. And so one of the things that I think changed, and and we saw in the George Floyd prosecution, was that we saw police turning against police, and that's something that is rarely happened before and is remarkable. And this is something that if DA's offices are serving their proper role as um, partners, sure, as Dan said, but also in oversight of police officers, they need. Um, they need a police department that is willing when they ha when something terrible has happened, not to create a cone of silence, but rather to work with the DA's office. And so you're not going to have that if the relationship is too adversarial. What you want is strong DA's who will stand up to the police, but also have their trust and faith such that they're willing, such that the police department is willing to share information and cooperate. That's what you need. And so just as you need a cooperative relationship with communities, you need a cooperative relationship with police, which which this is our moment because all of our candidates, I mean, I think down to every last one, um, wants change and wants to hold police accountable. And police departments don't want to be saddled with this reputation. They used to kind of be fine with it and sort of dug in their heels. And at least we're seeing movement in that regard. We've got to capitalize on that movement in order to make lasting change. And sorry, I know you asked about white collar crime. Um, white collar crime is, a, is critically important. As I said in the beginning, you know, this is part of the reputation of the DA's office. And it's because New York is the center of finance in this country. And it is they've played an extremely important role in um, addition to to and in partnership with the federal government in policing white collar crime. We need to have a DA who is sophisticated, competent, experienced, because they are ultimately going to be making decisions in these cases. I mean, sure, they can appoint people, but they are ultimately going to be responsible for making decisions in these cases. So you really want somebody who knows what, the, what, what they're doing here, because mistakes can be made. And these are big, important cases and cases where we want to hold people responsible. This office is not just there, um, you know, for, 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 for street crime. Though that's you know it, it prevent street, street crime prevention and in my mind prosecution at some points is important, but this is also a really important function of the office. We need to um, put resources in it, put resources in an intelligent way, and also have somebody who can make important decisions. It, Dan, it, and we'll come back to you in just a second, Kelly, on on any of the uh, these two topics related to the police department and, and white collar crime. They're they're obviously um, uh, somewhat different, but. Um, Dan, in terms of the way that the office works and the resources that are put towards investigating, prosecuting white collar crime, is that balance off at all in your mind that from what you've seen and what you know and what you did um, there? Is there is there too much focus on street crime and not enough on white collar crime? How do you think about that? Well, I should I should 
preface it by saying I'm a little biased because I'm a career, you know, prosecutor and defense lawyer of white collar crime. So, you know, when, when I was in the office, I focused a lot on the work of the major economic crimes bureau, the rackets bureau, cybercrime, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, and, and obviously you always want more resources, uh, but I think that it's, it's a pretty good balance. The number of white collar prosecutors and investigators hasn't changed particularly since Morgenthau. I think Vance has continued the uh, emphasis on it. Uh, but I think that the the it's probably it's around 100 assistant DAs that handle this these kind of cases. And interestingly, you know, the world doesn't know this, but any given white collar case today is 10 to 100 times more complicated than it was when I started as an ADA because of the explosion of uh, electronic evidence. Uh, just the amount of stuff that's available, communications and stuff in the cloud and, you know, searching devices. And it, it really is kind of a problem, which, which slows things down. Last thing I want to say on this is I want to level set a little bit on what white collar crime means in the Manhattan DA's office. So, you know, people, it's not all the about the Trump organization, right? That is a major case. And it's the kind of major case that the office has handled from time to time over the years. Uh, but it's not all like some of the candidates say, you know, bringing CEOs in in handcuffs. I mean, that's not that, you know, a lot of the cases involve crooked lawyers who steal from their clients. They involve retail investment frauds, you know, shady brokers, uh, you know, what else? Construction fraud, very common prosecution of uh, of labor union officers and labor racketeering is something the office has done for many years. Uh, so there are, you know, it, it is not as so much focused on the sort of, you know, Wall Street conflicts of interest stuff that the U.S. attorney does. There's no insider trading. The office has never prosecuted, as far as I know, hedge funds or private equity funds. Um, so I think it's, it's a different practice, just as fun, just as exciting. I loved it. Uh, but it is it is not all about focusing on, you know, former presidents of the United States and bringing in CEOs and handcuffs. All right. I wish I wish we had an hour here, but we're going to have to enter our last few few minutes. Um, but before we get to one or two more topics, uh, Kelly, did you want to speak to the issue of the police department relationship with the district attorney office or uh, this this broader issue of white collar crime? Yeah, just to respond one to something Rebecca said, I just want to note that the prosecution was of Derek Chauvin, not George Floyd. Um, and even pointing to that case as emblematic of some sort of change, you know, again, ignores the fact that while he was being prosecuted, police across this country killed over 60 more people, the majority of whom were Black and Latinx. Um, and the relationship for, between the police and prosecutors are so interconnected and they're so a part of the same like carceral system. And I know this is not a conversation about defunding the police, so I will leave that out of this, but I mean, they are a part of the same system and they are causing similar harms to similar communities. And we do, and I think, you know, my co-panelists are taking for granted that we actually need these actors, which, you know, we do not believe on my end of things. I um, mean, to, to white collar crime, I think is perpetuated because of huge disparities in wealth and lack of access to resources and the root causes of which are white supremacy and capitalism. And to the extent that, you know, we're ready to actually address them. I mean, these prosecutions are going to happen over and over again. I mean, until again, even with white collar crimes, we get to the root causes of what, you know, empowers these actors. We're not actually solving anything. So I, I, I do want to note that I think we're seeing in this discussion mm -hmm. sort of the the debate within the the candidate debate unfolding here. So that's good and, and mm -hmm. clarifying for people. Um, I see I, I hear a lot of, of what I've heard from candidates across the spectrum in this primary. So uh, as folks listen to this uh, discussion and then also research the candidates and their positions, you'll see a lot of uh, these values and points uh, portrayed, although I'm not sure if anybody in the primary is going quite as far as you want them to, uh, Kelly, but but some of them are close. Um, I heard recently on the great uh, FAQ NYC podcast, uh, Tali Farhadi and Weinstein talk about, she, she of course was general counsel there, so she would maybe say this, but she talked about Eric Gonzalez's Brooklyn District Attorney Office as something of a model. And I wanted to just quickly get each of your perspectives on whether you agree with that. Obviously, I would assume, Kelly, uh, you don't think he's gone far enough, but um, just in terms of what we've seen there, uh, you know, it seems like he's gone as far as anyone in New York, you know, in New York City's uh, district attorney offices has gone in terms of some reforms, um, what you make of sort of that notion. Uh, and, and Dan, why don't we start with you? 
Well, first I'll preface it by saying Eric Gonzalez is a friend, so I'm a little I'm a little biased. I do think his program is quite good. Uh, Cyvan started the first conviction integrity program in the state. It's been criticized from some corners for not being aggressive enough. Uh, I, I actually haven't haven't studied it in the last few years. Um, but what I want to caution, I do like Eric's program. I think it's a very very good program. But what I'd want to caution is this this notion, and I've seen this now in in articles and in social media, that you can judge a conviction integrity program by the number of people it exonerated. Um, that is a dangerous way of thinking because without knowing the right number of people that should be exonerated, you have no idea whether it should have been five, 10, 15, 100. Um, you know, so you have to judge the office a little bit more, uh, these programs a little bit more qualitatively uh, by their work, by how open they are to, to revisit uh, matters. And, and frankly, they have a responsibility not to exonerate people when the case was, um, was correctly decided. So uh, you, know, you have to have a responsible person that comes back to some of the themes we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Rebecca? You know, I, I think that the um, Brooklyn DA's office is um, a really good model for some of these changes. I think, you know, uh, the jury's still out a little bit um, in, in, in all of these things because we're, we're looking and we're tracking. And I think that's another really important thing about the future district attorney that isn't discussed very much data. Um, I think that, you know, we've just become smarter and better and more data driven in the way that we approach these things. And I think Eric Gonzalez's office has been doing that. We need to continue to um, produce data, which has traditionally been in the past very hard to access and has created some of these problems because people who research just can't get information. So I think being tra as transparent as one can be without interfering with individual cases is really important. And, um, and that way we can see how well what Eric Gonzalez has done um, works and we can compare with other prosecutors who are experimenting across the nation. And then we can figure out ways to do this that will be smart and will um, uh, you know, prevent some of the um, problems that have existed in the past with mass incarceration and disparities in, um, in, in the, um, you know, in racial disparities in the system. Um, but we should do it in a way that won't, you know, in my mind, and I, you know, I take Kelly's point, I really do, but I don't want, I, I don't want to create more harm in what we do. And I think that that, that requires transparency and, da and a data-driven approach. And uh, and Kelly, any any thoughts on looking at the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office under Eric Gonzalez as something of of a model? Actually, and surprisingly, um, think DA Katz has done a better job in making sure that the office, the conviction integrity unit, is staffed by someone who is truly independent and ha doesn't have a prosecutor background, has a background that is rooted in um, uncovering actual innocence. And so I think, you know, and, you know, I want to, you know, praise folks for doing doing things rightly. And I think I think in that office, you know, we're seeing what can happen when these offices are truly independent. And that is not at all what we're seeing with Eric Gonzalez's office, where you have Mark Hill at the helm of this conviction integrity unit, who has himself been um, at the center of wrongful convictions. And I think, and I think that is something that we want to be avoided when we talk about creating um, these kind of offices. Interesting point about Melinda Katz, the still relatively new Queens district attorney, uh, something worth looking at there. I think uh, since she came into office in, I think 2019, uh, a relatively short amount of time in the job, but worth, worth looking at that certainly. Uh, all right, in our last couple of minutes here, I want to, um, I'll make a couple of comments while I ask you to sort of think about is, if there's one thing, and there's many things we haven't gotten to, but I'll go around and ask you each if there's one thing that we haven't gotten to that you want to mention, or just an additional thought on something we really didn't dig into, um, you know, the future of this of this Trump case, but that's really been discussed quite a lot uh, as, a, as a major focus in the news, of course, as it would be, as, as Dan was mentioning. Um, but I'll come around in a second and just ask you if there's one more issue, one more topic, one more uh thing that you want to mention here as, as voters are thinking about the Manhattan District Attorney race. I, I will note, um, as, you're, as you're thinking about that, that uh, there's been not enough, but, but a good bit of news coverage I'll point people to, including uh, my guests in another segment uh, from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, which have both been digging in on the race a bit more. Uh, we at Gotham Gazette have been covering this race. Uh, on and off for, for many months, including some recaps of uh, some candidate forums that are out there. 
And then I also interviewed on video each of the eight candidates for about a half an hour each. Uh, I thought those interviews were uh, fairly detailed and illuminating. So I encourage people who want more information on the candidates to both uh, check out my conversation uh, with those reporters from the Times and, and the Journal. Uh, but also, if you're really interested in the candidates, uh, I have those video interviews for people to, to check out. All right. So um, let's let's go around with a with a couple final thoughts from from each of you on something we didn't touch on, or just an additional thought on something we did. Um, so Kelly, why don't we start with you? Yeah. So I think one of the things that topic topics you want to cover was gang conspiracy prosecutions, and I just wanted to note that this is a form of prosecution that is based on guilt by association and collective punishment. And it has devastated poor communities of color. And it's one of the things that from Vocal and the People's Coalition of Manhattan, from Manhattan DA accountability that we're calling on, you know, these candidates to not use gang databases because they are inherently racist and they criminalize people strictly based on where they live and who they live next to. Um, and so that's something I wanted, I wanted to touch on. Thank you. Uh, Dan. I wasn't going to mention this, but since, uh, you know, gang conspiracy just came up, I mean, they are uh, based on individualized assessment of guilt, not guilt by association. There was an excellent op-ed by Chris Ryan in the Daily News in the last couple of weeks, which explains this. So I'll, I'll leave that where it is. The two last thoughts I wanted to talk about was one on Trump. Uh, you know, I, I published an op-ed a, a month or two ago about the Trump case, about who's qualified to handle the case. And I can't stress enough how important it is to have someone with judgment experience and competence to succeed Vance, if that indeed is going to be a prosecution. Uh, and I opine that only four of the candidates um, are qualified to do that. And those are Tali Farhadi and Weinstein, Alvin Bragg, Lucy Lang, and Liz Crotty. Um, and then my last thought, uh, Ben, is really the same as my first thought. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it jumps off of something that, that I just heard Kelly say, which is that I'm very concerned that politics um, are going to creep into individual case decision-making, depending on which candidate gets elected in a way that it's not supposed to, right? Politics are fine when you're running for office and you're telling people about categories. They're no good when you're deciding on a case. You can't hold your finger up to the wind and say, what's the community gonna say if I say no or I say yes? Uh, and, and in particular, you know, Kelly said that I think 60 officers had killed people during the Chauvin trial, and I, I, that may be true, but a professional prosecutor looks at that or hears that and says, okay, well, how many of those were justified? How many of those uh, people that were killed were, uh, were armed? And then let's look at the facts of each one of those and decide whether there's a chargeable crime. I worry that somebody hears that and says, oh boy, when I'm DA, the community wants me to prosecute everyone, every cop who kills somebody. Uh, and that, I don't think that's literally what Kelly's saying, uh, don't get me wrong, but I am worried that that level of political thinking is going to infect decision-making if the wrong candidate is elected. Rebecca, we're gonna give you the last word in a second, but I, I, I need to give Kelly a quick chance to respond here as a, as, a, as a moderator of many of these things. I have to give you a, a second to respond there. The other thing I wanted to ask you though, Kelly, this is separate, but I did wanna mm -hmm. ask you, if Vocal or your coalition is at all doing what Dan just did about the candidates and saying, here's the two, three, four that we think, you know, voters should really look at and consider as the only ones we sort of, uh, you know, give somewhat of a seal of approval to. I don't know if, you, if you're doing that or not, forgive me, but um, if there are a couple of candidates you want to highlight as most aligned with your vision, please do that as well. So we are not, not we're not endorsing candidates. Um, we did um, give them all questionnaires that kind of mirrored our platform and allowed them to um, respond. And, and I think some of our coalition partners did the same, which Daniel kind of referred to with, you know, those we think are most harmful, those we think will do the least harm. Um, yeah, and I encourage viewers uh, to take a look at that. Um, but I think respond... I'll just say quickly, we did at Gotham Gazette write up the five borough defenders did a perfect, yeah, like that, where they also, they didn't necessarily endorse candidates, but they showed uh, their assessment of the candidates uh, who they thought would be mm -hmm. at least harmful. So folks can check that out as well. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. No problem. I think just responding to Daniel's concern about politics um, infiltrating um, prosecution, I think that that is impossible for it to not happen. Everything we do is political. Every decision we make is political. How we wear our hair, what we what we dress in, you know, literally everything we do is political. And I think the, the concern about that not um, 
creeping into prosecution is one that should be transformed into like, okay, so how, how do we work around that? How do we work with that? How do we address the concerns that community members have about police violence in these communities? It's not to ignore it. It's not um, to feel pressured by it, but it's to, to actually engage with community members and the concerns that they have about what is happening in their communities. And that is what we're calling on district attorneys to do, to be responsive to the people who they are supposed to be serving. Um, and I, I am concerned that that is not what we're having. We're having you know, prosecutors who are concerned with maintaining the status quo, who take for granted the need for policing and caging of people. And, and that is what we need to be moving away from. Thank you. All right, Rebecca. Uh Final thoughts, something we left out or something you wanted to highlight a little a little further? Yeah, um, so um, there's so much here and it's it's really hard for me as an academic not to launch into um, you know critical race theory and the problems that I see in critical race theory, but I will refrain. Um, <laughs> I think that um, you know one of the key things I'm gonna pick up on is um, something that Dan said and how it relates to the um, prosecution of the investigation and possible prosecution of Trump and his associates. And that is um, the proper role for political considerations in prosecution. It is absolutely proper for, for policy priority to determine how the new district attorney is going to act. That is what we're voting for. But like cases ought to be treated alike. And that is the history of professionalism that I'm talking about in this office, where we don't allow power to dictate outcomes. We um, we are professionals who look at the facts and the law. And if we abandon that, or we think that there's nothing other than that, then all there is is powerful people putting the people they don't like in jail, which is a scary, scary thought. And that is not the way, that, that is not the way it works. And that's not the way our, you know, of course, you know, we can all agree that it's very, very hard to keep politics entirely out. But the idea that there's no neutrality is dangerous. It's a dangerous thought. And we won't be able to hold people like Trump accountable if we embrace that idea. What we're, the way we hold powerful people to account is we say there are certain neutral laws. You break those laws and you go to jail. And so no matter how powerful you are, Mr. Former President, and so if the president or any of his associates broke the law, we need somebody who not only has that background as a professional, but also can actually project that because he will attack along the same lines that Kelly just said and said, no, 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 there's nothing but politics. And these are just Democrats out to get me. And you need somebody there who can convincingly say, no, I am just here as a professional holding somebody who has broken the law to account. And if we abandon that, then, you know, we don't have a liberal democracy anymore. So, you know, I mean, if you want to go down that path by all means, but I don't think we are there and I don't think it's a good road to go down. All right. I don't think we can end on uh, anybody in this group, uh, which is why I appreciate having you here uh, without feeling like somebody needs to have a chance to respond. But we're going to have to end it there. Uh, you've all shared so many uh, thoughtful comments and, uh, and insights, and I really appreciate it. Uh, Rebecca Royfe is a professor at New York Law School and former Manhattan prosecutor. Daniel Alonzo is a litigation partner at Buckley LLP, a former federal prosecutor and was the chief assistant district attorney in Manhattan during Cy Vance's first term. And Kelly Young is a black Christian lawyer, community organizer, and Brooklyn native working towards black liberation. She is the civil rights campaign coordinator at Vocal New York. And Vocal New York is part of the People's Coalition for Manhattan DA Accountability. Thank you all for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. And please do be sure to check out the conversation I had with Jonah Bromwich of the New York Times and Deanna Paul of the Wall Street Journal, which got into a little bit of the eight candidates running in the Democratic primary for Manhattan District Attorney. They've both been covering the race closely, as have we at Gotham Gazette. And if you're interested in more on the eight Democratic candidates running, you can find the video interviews I mentioned that I did with each of them at length about their platforms and their resumes and their vision for the office. If you are a Manhattan Democrat, Please be ready to vote in the Democratic primary for Manhattan District Attorney. It is coming up quickly. Early voting is June 12th to 20th. Primary day is June 22nd. There's also absentee balloting underway, but please be prepared to vote and go in and vote for Manhattan DA and the other offices on your ballot. Thanks very much. <laughs>